Welcome to the 64th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about one of the basics, career pathing and resume writing. This is one of those, this is not a soft skill. This is a really, a really important skill that everybody who works professionally needs to understand and master. But it's also not buried in the bowels of some Unfor- some forgotten syscall or whatever. This is this is really important stuff, and everybody should pay attention to it. This is not that class you took in college about um, sixty five hundred assembly. You're actually going to use this over and over again. And I admit my resume cover letter writing skills are not where I'd like them to be. So yes, one of the first things that comes to mind on this is when you're writing a resume. You're not writing just a resume. You are also writing a cover letter. And you are writing both the cover letter and the resume tailored for the position at the company you are looking at applying to. This is not the the old adage about, you know, send your resume to 100 companies a day or whatever the hell it is. Do not do that. Find companies that you like, that have positions open that fit what you want to do. You dig into the specifics of the position and you tailor the resume and the cover letter specifically to match that position. You have to remember that when you're doing this, you have three completely different audiences. There is the HR screening person. It may be a machine learning job at this point, but basically it's the buzzword compliance. The the the, the incoming sieve that keeps all of the, the riffraff out. From that, it goes to the hiring manager's desk where he or she will look at a stack of resumes and pull the top three that they want to they want to interview. Maybe the top five, but usually not that many. And they're looking at an entirely different set of requirements. They're not looking at the buzzwords. They're looking at, can you communicate clearly? They're looking at, does your story of your career so far fit in with what they're looking to do now? And are you going to be interested enough in staying with them long enough to make it worthwhile to hire you? And then the third part is when you're in the interview itself, having a reference for projects you've worked on, key numbers and takeaways. So if you're trying to remember exactly which version of a thing you were doing or how big the organization was, it gives you a really easy way to flip through it and say, yeah, so here it is on my resume. I was talking about these things. And it's the politeness to give the people in the room because frequently the interviewing team is a busy group of people and they want to be able to look at a resume that's clearly formatted and kind of look over why should they hire you. So I've never written a cover letter in my life. Confession time. That was drilled into my head early on that that's something you always do. I don't have an example handy, unfortunately, at the moment because I haven't written one. I haven't written one recently. And I've definitely participated in the in the culture of I have my resume, what passes as my resume, on my website. Uh, I've got a LinkedIn account, which is really one of the few social media accounts that I actually put any effort into maintaining. Um, I know I've done some monster.com stuff in the past to to get my resume out there in front of other people. And those are most definitely not targeted resumes. Well, things like LinkedIn and to a lesser degree Facebook or other online resume sharing sites are very useful. If nothing else, you can network with people and you can find job openings that are coming or if you are really prepared for it, you can open the gates to recruiters who are trolling LinkedIn for people who have skill sets. 
Ah, the and, recruiters. And it, if you're looking for a job, that can be extraordinarily helpful if if all you're doing is trying to find the salary range for a position in an area. If you were to say, hey, I'm going to move to Detroit or I'm going to move to Denver and I'm going to post on LinkedIn saying that I'm looking for that, you will get recruiters that come find you. And then you talk to them and figure out what the salary ranges are. So you have a realistic idea of what that looks like. But that's skipping ahead a little bit. Recruiters are useful as much as I don't like them. I really don't like them, but I definitely have worked with a few in the past. Some of them are really worth it. But it's important to realize uh, when you're working with a recruiter of how they get paid. And that's not usually not always in your best interest. Yeah, recruiters are like real estate agents that there are some amazing ones out there. And there's some out there that are really, they're just profit motivated and they're looking to close the deal as fast as possible for whatever profit they can make out of it. And they're not the kinds you want to have on your side. Usually they get paid by the number of of employees they get hired by their client. And sometimes the bonuses are linked to the salary and that can get really sketchy. So be careful with recruiters, but if you're looking for especially if you're doing market research about the positions, they can be an invaluable resource. Oh yeah, it keeps you plugged in to you know, sort of the hip trends. Because I have a presence on my website and LinkedIn, I get recruiters calling me more often than I'd like. Um, but keeping up with what Cisco is doing in this area, since they're always hiring positions, they there's always free information about what they're looking to hire, the salary range they're looking to hire in. And when you're looking at the job market or looking at getting in the job market, those are really important foundations to figure out. Completely agreed. And if the only thing you have out there is LinkedIn, it's not a bad place to start. I would be careful with LinkedIn to make sure that you have, you keep, you keep it professional. You only post things that are either, you know, social media stories that are related to things in your career or things that you want to be in your career. Like I wouldn't post photography related stuff there, even though I'm into photography because it doesn't fit with my professional persona. Be careful to, there's no misspellings allowed. There's no typos allowed. There's none of that, that social media stuff of, Oh, I was, I was texting at three in the morning stuff. No, this is, it's a serious professional resource and you treat it as such. You have full names and titles of your jobs, of the organization, of the team. If you can, you have links to coworkers who were worked alongside you. Um, and they're whatever the, the LinkedIn phrase for it is, but you have them basically refer you and say that, you know, you're a solid upright person. Cause that's one of the things that goes through the HR hiring filter. Several times in the past year, I've been involved in interviewing on the other side of the table. And what I've gotten is basically a screen scrape of their LinkedIn pages and at the end, a PDF or a Word document of their resume. And when you're reading through it, trying to get to the PDF at the end, you're going to scan through the LinkedIn stuff. And if it turns you off or it, it, it flags in some way that this is not good, it sours you to the rest of it. So if, you, if you're doing LinkedIn... Treat it, treat it with, with respect. Treat it properly. So really there are two types of resume cover letter-ish things that you're trying to present. There's what you keep on your website if you keep something there. There's your profile on LinkedIn. There's that profile that's common, that's usually electronic, that's available for people to to find. And then on the other side, there's you're really interested in a specific company 
you're tailoring a resume and cover letter for that specific company, for a specific position that you're interested in applying for. I frequently keep a PDF of my resume available online, but even when somebody like a friend says, hey, we've got a position, or I, I think it'd be great for a position at this thing. I say, I'll get, I'll get my resume tomorrow. And I go that night and I touch it up for what I understand about that company and their needs and their things. Um, it's my, my father drilled this into me from a very early age. This is, you spend the time, you, you spend the extra hour or two or three it takes the night before just to make sure that it looks clean and it gives you a chance to also go through and update all of the other bits. But I agree that there are kind of two, two general sources you keep. You have the sanitized for anything in your field broadly, and then you have this, well, the more specific resources that you use for actual applications for specific positions. One of the other things we haven't really mentioned, which is that in, in modern DevOps shops, frequently, if you have a, an up-to-date GitHub page, that can act as your resume. In, oh, GitHub. I have know, been on the interview table several times, and it's, what does this guy have in his GitHub account? Hey, Jack, could you, we're interviewing this guy over here. Could you review the, some of the, the Golang code he's got in his GitHub account? So if you've got uh, stuff that you maintain or projects that you're part of in GitHub, be aware that that's going to be a very popular thing for people to look at. And don't feel bad if you can't put anything on GitHub. There's a lot of organizations, I've worked for many, that either outright prohibit sharing of code written for the organization in public or say you have to go through legal hoops and go through a technology review board and you have to go through legal and you have to go through all this other stuff. And every one of those layers makes it harder and harder to even consider posting things because you don't want to every change, everything you do, you don't, you don't have to run it through somebody else again or a team of other people again. A buddy of mine works at a bank. Uh, they have machine learning basically that scans outgoing email. And if there's source code in that outgoing email, you're automatically fired. And after the fact, they may think about suing you. So, yeah, there's totally situations where that's not an option for you. And that's totally cool. Don't try to pad GitHub for your resume. Being that, well, it's Git. People can look at your revision history. So moving on, assuming that you actually are submitting a, an actual resume, a lot of HR organizations still want you to send in a Microsoft Word document, which is terrible, but they still want it. So being able to generate one that looks correct and has the formatting you want it is usually a valuable thing. Usually most folks will settle for PDFs. So I always maintain a Microsoft Word document and a PDF, both both properly typeset and formatted without any silly metadata or anything. I've, I scan through them to make sure I haven't put location tags or stupid stuff in there. And that's what I submit. Now, sometimes you get into those positions where it's, here's a 15-page application process on the web, and you're going to go through and type in the names and the dates of all your previous employers and everything else by hand, even though it's oh, on your resume. I ooh hate those. Yeah, that's it's terrible, but be prepared. It's out there. Um, so my thing about submitting Word documents is that I've... I'm aware of cases where HR personnel or recruiters have attempted to update resumes for whatever reason. And PDFs are definitely safer in that regard. 
yeah, the sketchy re- recruiters we talked about earlier have been known to fudge the truth, as it were, to make your application look better than it would have otherwise been. So be careful of that. One of the things that was always drilled into my head over and over and over again was that your resume had to be one single page, no more, no less. No one's ever going to care to flip through any extra pages. You're just wasting ink and they're not going to hire you. But that doesn't work anymore. A, that doesn't work anymore. B, that's never the case. I've, I, if, you're stu- if your history fits on the page, I'm not interested in hiring you. But I think that technique was more aimed at entry-level personnel where you don't have a lot of history. And I think the technique really meant that you want to grab someone's attention in the first page, the top of the first page, not necessarily limit to one page. So that that's something I had a hard time coming over uh, when I was doing resume work several years ago. Yeah, I think that the one-page rule is really good for like a computer science grad or somebody who's just entering the field and they have no work history. Don't go on for pages and pages about your extracurriculars. Keep it short. Keep it keep it direct and focused on what you're trying to do and try to sell yourself. I remember when I was involved in the hiring process for a, a CIO position, and the resumes came in, and we were asked to review them, and they were 30-plus pages. Yeah, proper CVs have lots of content. Wow. And I try to hit my resume every six months to 12 months, even when and especially when I'm not looking for for work. I mentioned this in the last episode that it is extraordinarily helpful to have a current sense of what your skills are relative to the market and what technologies you're looking at, what technologies you're interested in, what you've been working on. So when you're comparing yourself to either incoming people that you're interviewing or people talking about, oh, the market's changing and there's money over there to be had, you can look at your resume and try to understand better what it is. It also gives you the the easy and quick um, response when somebody says, hey, show me your resume. I've got a position you might be interested in, that it, it's not going to be a weekend worth of work to bring it up from like a five-year-old copy. That you have something that's relatively recent, has recent projects on it, and you're mostly just tweaking some numbers and maybe adding a, adding a line or two about recent work. Well, really, practically, I'm coming up on a project at work that I probably definitely want to have as a line animal or description of something I accomplished at my client. It's going to be a lot easier for me to to write up those couple sentences or one sentence to put on my resume if I keep my resume updated in a regular basis rather than coming back to it, say, in a couple years. And I remember that project. What did I do there? This is especially true at organizations that tend to retain people for long periods of time. I've worked at universities a lot, and I know that you have as well, Jack. And if you spend 10 years in an organization, the project you worked on seven years ago that was super important and interesting, you're going to have a very foggy memory of. So one of the approaches you can take is in your resume and the in your private copy, keep lots of extra detail about all the projects you've ever worked on. And then when you're generating a resume for a specific position, you filter out the things that don't really matter for that particular position to keep it from being a 15-page resume. But you have all the detail captured as notes effectively, so you can then look at it later. So I'm a nerd. I do my professional paper resume in LaTeX. And it's great. I can have all sorts of extra sections 
defined in the LaTeX source code. I can comment them out, comment them back in, you know, depending on how I'm I'm trying to target that resume. And I don't have to take things out or do weird formatting if I want to if I want to refer to an old job or not refer to that old job. It's super simple. I wish I had your dedication to LaTeX. I still this is the one thing actually I use Microsoft Word for. The only thing at this point is I use it for my resume, which is kind of sad. But again, some some HR um, organizations require Word documents, and the the translators can be iffy at times. So just making sure that I have something that can generate a consistent and usable resume is, is helpful. Now, in the resume itself, um, you mentioned this a minute ago, Jack, but it's it's super important to focus on this. The the entire style of a resume has to flow the way a news article does. And I have a background in journalism, so this makes a lot of sense to me. That Let me remind our listeners that someone here has a degree in journalism. You lead with the most important stuff. Whatever your name is, whatever your contact information is, that has to be the top, the absolute top thing. Because frequently people are like, how do I get in touch with that person again? And you want it to be the first thing they see. Hit them with either a summary or a short description of what you are and what you do. What are you looking for? What is your goal? What are you trying to achieve here? What notable things do you bring to the table as bullet points? And then you can start walking into your employment history itself. And I generally tend to go newest position first. Because it makes trailing off the back end easy. You can say, well, if that last page didn't get printed or they, they dropped it or, or whatever, the least important stuff was at the end. And that's all. I also put conference presentations up at the very end, but we'll get to that in a minute. I try to have the employment section be very straightforward. I try to have a section on kind of what the overall position was and then projects I was either proud of or was instrumental in. And sometimes... The projects are miserable, awful slogs of work. But demonstrating that you can do the miserable, awful slog of work, and you can do it, and you can write about it professionally, and when they ask you about it in the interview, you can be cheerful about it and say, hey, it was hard, but we did it, is helpful. So I try to order those in, and for each position, I start from whatever I think is the most interesting project or piece of work, and I, I work down. Um, and then next position, next position, next position. I have gotten to the point where I no longer include anything about my education other than a single line saying I have a BA because most people don't care that I have a BA in journalism at this point. I've been in the field long enough that that is no longer as relevant. Gosh, I remember the arguments when I was much younger about, do you put your GPA on your, on your resume? If you're out of college, probably. Yeah. If you're a fresh grad. If you've had a job, no. Once you've had a job or once you have a GitHub account, they can see your work, and that's what they care about. They don't care about you know how you did in systems design class or in whatever ancillary you know general ed classes. They care that you have a degree from an accredited university that you can write and you can think clearly and you can work with other people. That's what they want. And really, there's something really simple here. Every job description ever always has a bullet point of must be able to communicate and write clearly. I mean, have have you ever seen a job description that where that wasn't a requirement, Brendan? I haven't ever seen one. And the the resume process is the first step in that sales process of can you the write resume clearly? Resume process is basically that test. Yeah. Can can you sell yourself in in a short form, you know, page two, three pages, whatever it is, and 
make a clear, concise argument. And this is part of the reason that it is so critical, so absolutely fundamentally critical that you do not have spelling errors. You do not have type type like typos of any, any variety that you have a, a, either an active or a passive voice, whichever voice you choose, pick it, stay with it down to silly things. Like, are you using Oxford commas or not? Like seriously, the, the hiring managers really care about this kind of stuff. They may not seem to, but they care about it and they will notice it and you will get points off in their head if you, if you screw it up. And to me, being a LaTeX fan, a professionally typeset document really stands out to me. And once I start coming across you know, casual errors, I don't have a journalism degree. Um, I don't remember you know, if the Oxford comma is the comma before the and or not having a comma before the and. But those inconsistencies and those typos themselves really stand out as as detractors. And especially if it's in the context of something that you're attempting to or have well typeset, those errors can really stand out. And a lot of the positions in our field, in either operations and DevOps and programming and all of these kinds of things, they are very detail-oriented positions. And so one of the things that you're signaling to the hiring team with your resume is with effectively unlimited prep time, can you get this right? Can you make this document look correct without stupid jokes, without typos, without other issues? And are your margins sane? Are your fonts displaying correctly? It's, it's, all, it's all a very interesting... Dance. Yes. It is, a, it is a delightful little dance that way of demonstrating competence. It's important. And my dad had an, has an MBA, and he drilled into my head, starting, I guess, in high school sometime, that this is the way that resumes work. And so I have never been the type that sends out many resumes. I, I would send out two or three, and each of them would be tailored exactly to the position I wanted. This is even when I was in college looking for my first professional job. Because I wasn't trying to send, I wasn't trying to get get a job. I was trying to get specific jobs and I did research on the organizations I was going to work for. And of course this is all before September 11th happened and the economy fell apart. So some of this is taken with a grain of salt, of course, that I had a different situation than a lot of folks, especially people entering the workforce now, but the, the shotgun approach never worked for me and never appealed in terms of watching other people do it. I was just thinking that there's, there's definitely an, a stereotype and attitude about you put your resume out on the internet and you people will flock to your talent. And that's never worked for me. Uh, there's never been a job that I've gotten that hasn't beca been because I knew somebody. And my current job at my consulting company, literally one of the other admins that works for this company, I used to have beer with years ago, straight out of college. That was my connection, but I knew somebody at that company and using that to get your foot in the door, being able to do a bit of research, be able to target a resume at the position they're, they're hiring into has always been the most effective way to get satisfactory jobs. There are precisely two jobs that I've gotten in my life that did not come from knowing somebody who was at the organization already. 
And once I was moving overseas, my wife was pregnant and we were trying to find a place to land. And I was targeting universities, but it was more scattershot than I would have liked in terms of trying to find organizations that had strong Unix presences and other other pieces there. Um, and it's a lot harder that way. It's a, it's a lot more difficult to find a job when you are going into a blind because most of the jobs I've ever I've ever gotten, including the first jobs that I had out of college and a bunch of the other positions that I've had, they come from either a boss or a coworker or somebody else who is like, hey, you'd be great in this team, this place I work with, or even better, hey, there's an opening on the team that I'm on. I would love you to work. I would love to work with you again. And I think that's part of the reason that I give recruiters such short shrift because most of this is a game of building network connections and who you know, which circles us back to the LinkedIn thing again. Sometimes it's really, really handy, especially if, like me, you can't remember people's names very well. <laughs> I suffer from that as well. Having LinkedIn network professionally with all of the people you've ever worked with that you thought were worth working with means that when you're looking for somebody's name later, it's really easy to find it. You can go, oh, yeah, that was, that, that was that guy who worked in the databases. And what was his name? Uh, no, you just go look it up. And you have it. And it's really quick. And it lets you post to that professional network that's saying, hey, I am looking for something. And then if you left a good impression with them, they'll be like, oh, well, it isn't quite what you do. But I found that there's a security position or whatever it is. You'd probably be good for that. So it it is a really valuable tool. That really is the way to find good jobs. Recruiters definitely have their place. But I've I've also noticed that they tend to be most likely to look for entry level or there's a large company that's staffing up quickly for a specific project. How can we bring more people on board quickly? And while that's a good way to get your, get a foothold in the company, perhaps, um, those usually aren't the most rewarding jobs. Mm -hmm. Now there's definitely recruiters out there looking for, for different kinds of things that, are far and above that, but that's kind of the stereotypical feeling that I've I've had from them usually. I completely agree. Oh, and a final note on the actual resume itself. I used to have a line at the end of my resume saying references available on request, and I've stopped even doing that. I find that if somebody wants to contact your references, it's usually at the end of the interview process. They've already decided they want to give you the job, and they're just verifying that you're not a jerk. And if they've gotten to that point and they haven't been able to figure out if you're a jerk or not, they're probably not going to offer you the job. And with the way that references work so frequently, it's just put the names of my friends on there that it doesn't have a lot of relevance anyway. And when you're... When you've gotten a position or gotten an interview because of someone else you already know in the company, usually they make a pretty good reference. Yeah. So one thing that I suck at, and I believe really the only way to get better at, is practicing. And that's practicing interviews. And I I don't like to be on that side of the interview table uh, no more or less than anyone else. I'm much more comfortable doing the interview rather than being the interviewee. And I've definitely had more 
It definitely had more failed attempts than positive attempts, which, frankly, is probably what one expects when one's doing a lot of interviewing. And I find this very interesting that I actually prefer being the interviewed instead of the interviewer. Um, ah, of course. I I find it really easy to sell myself in that short period of time. The You have an hour, you have two hours, you have a day. With teams of people, getting to know them, trying to understand what their motivations are, and trying to sell them on, on your positive skills. And part of what made it easy for me, or part of what made it easier for me, is that I realized, I don't know, 10 years ago, that interviews are not about selling yourself to a company. It's about selling yourself to the company and having them sell themselves to you. Part of it is definitely the fact that you are interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you. Yeah, you don't want to go work for a bunch of bozos. You don't want to go work for a, in a hostile, toxic work environment that people are working 70, 80-hour weeks. And that comes across real fast in an interview. And I find that part of it really fun to, to kind of see what an organization is like, to see what the people who are interviewing you think of the organization, because you can pick up a lot of context from that. And based on advice that I've gotten from professional peers over the years, I try to do an interview every year, like a full on serious, I would take the job if the, if it was right, um, just to keep the skills up because it is a soft skill that takes practice and repetition. Even though I don't want to leave my job, I love my job, but it's always good to have the skills. So if your employer decides to get sold to somebody or goes out of business or has figured out that, you know, we've got too many developers and we need to cut a couple. You know, crap happens. And that extra office we have in that weird location in the United States, yeah, that has three people there. Yeah, we need to cut back. Yeah, so we're closing the office and the people who want to commute to the other city that's an hour and a half away, they can commute and everybody else gets cut. Well, that sucks. So... I try to only interview for jobs that I actually want and actually would take because otherwise the whole exercise becomes kind of stupid. And my nervousness stems from the fact that I have had several interview uh, experiences where I don't really feel like that I've sold myself to the level of which I wanted to make an impression. Even at times when I actually was offered a position... I later found out that I had set some expectations in my interview that weren't who I was. And that's always hard um, because you it is a sales thing. You, you are selling yourself as the candidate who would be most well-suited for this position or whatever the phrasing would be. And it is absolutely crucial not to lie, but it's also important to promote the skills and abilities that you have that they actually want. And that can be really difficult to walk that line of like, how do, am I overselling this? Am, am I, am I telling people too much about this thing that they're inferring that I'm better than I am at it or going the other direction and being like, well, I mean, the people who work at Google, they're all smarter than me. So I'm not going to, you know, you know, talk up my skill set very well. Um, I applied for a job at Pixar time out of mind ago, and I really, really screwed up the, the, the preview phone call. And I realized afterwards that I had sold myself short in almost every respect <clears throat> because I was I was answering based on how I felt relative to other people that I knew rather than how I felt my skills actually were. 
And yeah, they never called me back. When you're in an interview, always bring five or six printed out copies of your resume with you. Bring a ballpoint pen and a highlighter for your, for your own use. This gives you something to write on and take notes on. And it gives you the ability to hand a copy to other people in the room in case they either they didn't print one or they lost their printout or they use an inkjet in the office and it's smudged. Or you have the resume you want them to see and they have the PDF scraped off of monster.com. Exactly. And this, this helps set everybody at ease. It gives you that first couple of minutes in the interview. It's something you can physically do. You can walk around the table. You can talk to people. You can hand it out. Instead of just walking in and sitting down and kind of waiting for that first question. Also, if you are new at interviewing, almost all interviews that I've done in the last, I don't know, 10 years start with, so you're here for this position. Let me tell you a little bit about our company. And they'll spend the first five minutes or so kind of talking to you about the position and the company and what, what is expected and that gives you some time to get your heart rate to slow down and to get your breathing under control and kind of think through what your first questions are. And, and kind of judge the folks talking at you. Yeah, because you want to get a sense of, well, who the manager is, because usually one of the managers is in the room. What the pecking order is internally, who has what skill set so you can talk to individuals about the things what that personalities are, are present. Yeah. You also need to have done research beforehand because near the end of the interview, they're going to ask, they're going to say, do you have any questions for us? You should and have one. And if you don't have any questions, that looks really bad on you. The only acceptable way to get to the end of the interview and say, I, I don't have any questions is if you have been interacting with them constantly and asking them questions as you go. Because then at the end you can say, oh, well, my, my questions really were about like the work environment and the dress code and company culture. Know, yeah. And you've, you've answered my question so far. And if they can think back and they can go, yeah, okay, he did ask those questions. We did answer those questions. We're fine. Um, but having done 20 minutes of Google on them beforehand to know kind of what industry they're in and kind of the, the basics of what the team is, what they do, and what their mission is, because most of this stuff is public-facing in terms of like a team's mission statement or whatever, can give you a lot of leverage in terms of the other candidates because you've done the little bit of homework. Um, I would also, if they're a public company, I would also strongly recommend looking at the last month or two's stock ticker and kind of events that have influenced the stock so you can know about sensitive subjects you shouldn't bring up. Like if they did something dumb at CES and their stock dropped a whole bunch of points, you might want to avoid that one. Um, but if they've just announced something at CES that's really cool and that happened a couple of days. ask some good questions. Exactly. So... These are all people's skills, and part of what they're doing in the interview is, well, they can find anybody to code. They can find anybody to run a server. What they care about is, are you fun to work with? Are you a reasonable person to interact with? Because nobody wants to work with a jerk. And so they're looking for people that have the, the skills and the abilities to be pleasant to work around and get the job done. Very rarely do they say, well, they're, they're a jerk, but they're really bright, so we're going to hire them anyway. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send, send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 64th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast.
I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.